1: Welcome to SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and a true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. We left Jeffrey as he failed out of The Ohio State University and moved home with Lionel and Sherry. Determined to set his son on a good path, Lionel insisted that Jeffrey join the military, And so, in 1979, Jeffrey Dahmer enlisted in the U.S. Army. After boot camp, he was sent to Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama, where he began training as an MP, or a military policeman. This was short-lived, because Jeffrey eventually got very drunk one night and subsequently was beat up by two privates. So, from Fort McClellan, Jeffrey was sent to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, where he trained as a medic. For the most part, in These early years, Jeffrey's service record was good. On a two-week visit home, Lionel was amazed at the transformation he saw in his son. He had hoped for his son's future for the first time in a long time. So it's important to remember that in 1979, the U.S. Army was still recovering from the Vietnam War. The last of the U.S. troops left Vietnam in 1975. And during this recovery period, there was rampant drug use, racism, And morale was extremely low. And this was all due in in part to the fact that there was so much resistance to the war efforts. So keeping in mind the general lack of leadership and discipline, some of the things that went on when Dahmer was sent to Baumholder Germany will make more sense. So once he was sent to Germany, Dahmer's service record began a steady decline and his drinking began to spiral out of control again. He would get drunk, and then he would tell fellow soldiers that he'd killed someone in Ohio. And, of course, they didn't believe him. At one point, a group of these guys uh, that Jeffrey was in the Army with um, decided that Jeffrey needed to lose his virginity. So they took him to a brothel and paid for a a sex worker for him, but Jeffrey snuck out before anything happened between him and the prostitute. And it was during this... um, this first year in Balmor in, in 1979, that Dahmer and several other enlisted men were invited to Thanksgiving dinner at one of the older soldiers' houses. So Dahmer at one point got into an argument with one of the other men, a man named Preston Davis, who will come up again later. He left the house to walk the eight miles back to the base in sub-zero temperatures. After a few hours, Dahmer arrived back at the soldier's house. But he'd lost his glasses, and it didn't seem as though he'd just spent hours out in the freezing weather. And more disturbing, there appeared to be blood on Dahmer's clothes. What else was Jeffrey Dahmer up to while he was in Germany? Well, years after Dahmer was murdered in prison, two men came forward to recount sexual assaults they suffered at Dahmer's hands while stationed in Germany. And they did this on the oxygen special, Dahmer on Dahmer. I wondered why Dahmer was never convicted of these assaults or why he wasn't thrown out of the military because of them, especially if these sexual assaults had been reported. But a quick internet search of male-on-male rape in the military answered this question for me. One of the first articles that came up in the search was titled, Son, Men Don't Get Raped. And I think that title is just about as perfect an explanation of how male-on-male sexual assaults in the military have been handled. The military has come a long way since the 1980s, but sexual assault and harassment still exist. Um, so in a 2014 RAND, and RAND is a research, org- research organization, in a 2014 RAND report on the military workplace, they surveyed 170,000 active duty military personnel. From this, they estimated that of the 1.3 million service members, an estimated 20,000 of them reported having been sexually assaulted in 2013. 10,000 of these were men, and that 10,000 men, that's approximately 1% of active-duty military um, men, reported sexual assaults. Of the 10,000 men who experienced a sexual assault, the majority of them were lower-ranking enlisted personnel. Of these reported assaults, 34% described it as hazing. Over the last few years, it seems that the number of assaults that are reported um, have increased, as indicated by the Department of Defense's 2017 report. And in this report, they mapped out the the number of sexual assaults reported over a 10-year period. And in 2017, there were 6,800 sexual assaults actually reported. And they compared that with an estimated 15,000 assaults that occurred. I wanted to include this information to paint a picture of what things must have been like in the late 70s, early 80s. If it's difficult for military personnel to report sexual assault now, I cannot imagine what it must have been like 40 years ago. I tried to find statistics concerning male-on-male sexual assaults in the military in the 80s, but I wasn't successful. Son, men don't get raped. So who were these men who alleged that Dahmer had assaulted them? Preston Davis was 20 years old when he was stationed with Jeffrey Dahmer in Bolmart, Germany. In this clip, Preston Davis recounts the fateful day on which Jeffrey Dahmer changed his life forever. We were out on a field exercise, it was a two week exercise. And the last three or four days of the exercise, our vehicle broke down.
0: During that time frame, I was drugged and sexually assaulted by Jeff. My career went downhill after this. Uh, I got a DWI in um, 1985 in the military.
1: Um, I had a rocky marriage with my first wife. I wound up getting out of the military in 86, divorcing her. Uh, Became estranged from my son. Substance abuse. Alcohol abuse. Um, that's what a lot of uh, victims do to try to suppress that pain. Davis reported the incident to an officer, but it was completely ignored. Not surprisingly, Preston Davis began to abuse alcohol and other substances. And in 1985, while he was still in the military, he got a DWI. And the next year, divorced. Dahmer's next victim, Billy Joe Capshaw, who you heard in the opening, was just 17 when he was bunkmates with Dahmer. As an aside, when Capshaw arrived in Germany in February of 1980, he was warned by other soldiers to be careful if he left the base. So this is a direct quote from Art Harris's book, Jeffrey Dahmer's Dirty Little Secret, The Unsolved Murder of Adam Walsh. Quote, a month before, a man had been found mutilated nearby, his entire trunk sliced, Capshaw's bunkmates knew the victim. His name was Hans. He was a hitchhiker from close by Eider Oberstein who would partied at the barracks um, and was friends with Jeffrey Dahmer. A night or so before he was found dead, he was seen leaving with Dahmer. End quote. Dahmer drugged Billy almost nightly, beating him, raping him. Uh, he had me tied up naked to a bunk you know, and was beside me, naked himself, and holding me like I would hold a woman. He raped me, sexually molested me, he tortured me. The attacks, the, the things like that were continuous and almost every day. There's guys in there and they got guns and they're mean. They've been to Vietnam. As a 17 year old kid, Would you really get that out in your unit that someone raped you? Billy tried to get a room change, but his request was dismissed. In fact, when Billy Capshaw reported the assaults to one of the lead officers, he was answered with, quote, so the baby wants out of his room, end quote. In response to this, Capshaw grabbed the officer's gun and he tried to kill himself. Remember that son, men don't get raped. During the year or so that he was bunkmates with Dahmer, Capshaw endured broken bones, mental breakdowns. Capshaw would describe how, after a certain amount of alcohol, Dahmer would get a look in his eyes and Capshaw knew that he was, quote, about to get it, end quote. According to Billy Capshaw, Dahmer would control everything, He intercepted Capshaw's mail. He accompanied Capshaw to any medical visits, and there were a lot of them. And he even managed to somehow divert Capshaw's pay into his own account. Well, you might be thinking, why would Billy Capshaw allow Dahmer to abuse him this way? Well, besides the fact that we should not um, victim blame, There are some good reasons for this. Billy Capshaw was very young when he roomed with Dahmer. He was just 17. And on top of that, he was from a very rural part of Arkansas. So it's very unlikely that he had any kind of worldly experience. In Capshaw's case, he kept trying to get help, but no one would step in. So he began to exhibit symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome. The most widely studied case of Stockholm Syndrome was the the case of Patty Hearst, right, Um, But for those of us who base everything on TV shows, there was an episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia titled The Gang Gets Held Hostage that really, I think, brought this syndrome to the masses. Uh, The McPoyles, who are incestuous, pledge-inhaling, warm-milk-drinking family, held the gang hostage at Patty's Pub, and Sweet D quickly developed a case of Stockholm Syndrome, identifying with the disgusting McPoyles. In addition to his assaults on Preston Davis and Billy Capshaw, Jeffrey Jeffrey Dahmer's time in Germany was filled with other disturbing behaviors. He was arrested by MPs at least once for masturbating in front of children at a park. Remember this incident because there'll be a similar one later. Dahmer, among other things, was an exhibitionist, which is a paraphilic disorder designated in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. This is exhibitionist disorder, and they define it as a mental disorder that causes causes a person to expose his sexual organs or genitals to other people, usually people they've never met and are not expecting it. So often, an exhibitionist will masturbate as they expose themselves. Dahmer would likely have been categorized as a Class 3 exhibitionist, um, an exhibitionist criminal, because he engaged in other sex crimes. But as a quick aside, um, up until 1973, homosexuality had been classified as a mental illness in the DSM. And it wasn't until 1987 that homosexuality was completely removed from the DSM. So if that tells you anything about being a gay man back in the 70s and 80s, I don't know what does. Billy Capshaw thought Dahmer may have killed in Germany. He recounts times that he found bloody, mucus-covered, buck knives, and Dahmer's stuff. Billy would get rid of the knives when he could. Um, the most disturbing thing that happened was a time when Billy recalled Dahmer returning from a night out and Dahmer's clothing was just covered in blood. Billy Capshaw wasn't the only one who thought Dahmer may have killed in Germany. Dahmer's anatomy instructor in Germany, Linda Schwischer, recalled that on three separate occasions, men were brought to the hospital having been horribly sodomized. One was even close to death. And she says, quote, The saddest part of my time in the Army came after I was out for a few years. Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal murderer, was one of the medics that I had trained for ER work during my tour in Balmer West Germany, just north of Landstuhl. There were three young, slender, dark-complected men who were so seriously assaulted that A... They could not crawl away from where they were found needing serious surgery. B, in spite of collecting rape kit evidence against whomever had hurt them, the MPs would not start a case of any kind. Oh, it was just a lover's argument. And C, the one man who had emergency surgery to save his life um, had to get a permanent colostomy bag. But still, no one would press charges or tell anyone what happened. Out of approximately 18,000 men on that post, these were the only men who even came close to reporting being raped, end quote. So that further illustrates, to me anyway, the way in which sexual assaults were handled back then. Linda Swisher went on to describe Dahmer as, uh, as having, quote, something totally wrong about him, something, something antisocial, end quote. Beginning in May of 1981, Dahmer was written up at least a dozen times for disobeying orders, arriving to work late, or arriving to work drunk. The army sent him to an alcohol rehab program in February of 1981, but he was declared a failure within within weeks. Jeffrey was discharged from the army under a Chapter Nine, which is for alcohol or drug rehabilitation failure. Um, he was discharged on March 26, 1981. After he left Germany, and once you know, after 1991, when he was convicted of being this disgusting person. There was some speculation that while he was in Baumholder, Germany, that there may have been, that five of these unsolved murders out there may have been the work of Dahmer. But m- most crime experts kind of dismissed this because the victims were female. So buckle up, because here's where things get really bizarre. Maybe. Upon his discharge from the army, Dahmer was given a one-way ticket to anywhere he wanted. He couldn't face his father and Sherry, so he decided to go to Florida, and this came out in a 1991 interview of Lionel for a Milwaukee newspaper. Dahmer arrived in Florida in late March of 1981, and he stayed there, reportedly, until September of 1981. Lionel reported that Jeffrey worked at a sub shop and slept on the beach that year, um, you know, that year after he'd been discharged from the Army. While Dahmer was in Florida, he actually had the nerve to call Capshaw at least twice, One of these times was around 9 p.m. on July 26, 1981. That's important, okay? Well, what really went on in Florida? It kind of depends on who you ask. Jeffrey briefly lived in an apartment complex called Bimini Bay, and that was a mere 10 minutes away from the Hollywood Mall. Well, you might be asking yourself, who cares? Why do we care where the Hollywood Mall is? Well, here's why. If you are a true crime enthusiast, then you know who John Walsh is. Um, America's Most Wanted, and now that show In Pursuit. His son, Adam Walsh, was abducted from a Sears at the Hollywood Mall on July 27, 1991. Two weeks later, Adam's head was found in a drainage canal along the Florida Turnpike near Port St. Lucie, which is about 98 miles from the abduction site. The question is, could Dahmer have killed Adam Walsh? According to writer Arthur J. Harris, Jeffrey Dahmer did in fact kill Adam Walsh. Harris has been investigating the possible connection for years and he's written two books on the subject. Uh, The first one is Jeffrey Dahmer's dirty secret, the unsolved murder of Adam Walsh book one, finding the killer and then later book two, finding the victim. I first heard this theory on Dan Zabansky's true murder podcast when he interviewed Harris. And I I had to admit that um, I I really wanted this theory to be the truth, but I'm going to let you decide in 1981, a man named Willis Morgan, um, he was 34 years old. He worked as a pressman for Miami Herald, and I guess that's somebody who works the press machines in in the newsroom. He had a prosthetic leg as a result of a motorcycle accident, and it, it left him with a really pronounced limp. Well, on Thursday, July 30th, 1981, this man, Willis Morgan, showed up at the Hollywood Police Department. He reported to the police that he'd been in the ball he'd been in the mall around noon on the day of Adam's abduction. He was in Radio Shack when a large, drunk, and disheveled-looking man approached him by saying, "Hi there, nice day, isn't it?" Morgan ignored the man and received what he described as a demonic, angry stare from this disheveled man. For some reason, Morgan followed the man into the Sears store, and he watched as the man went into the toy department. But eventually, he got spooked and left. Uh, Morgan went to the Hollywood police that Thursday morning to report what he had seen, but he says that the police blew him off. So in 1991, when Dahmer was on the front page of the Miami Herald, Morgan remembered him as the man that took Adam Walsh. He again went to the Hollywood police. This time he spoke to Detective Hoffman, who Morgan says dismissed his claim about Dahmer. So that's Willis Morgan. He tried to report something. Um, Right after it happened in 1981, he tried to report the guy that he thinks he saw who uh, Adam Walsh's kidnapper was. He tried to report that on July 30th, 1981. And then he went back to the Hollywood police 10 years later when Dahmer was on the front page of the Miami Herald. In addition to Willis Morgan, there were reports from children. Five weeks after the abduction, a 12-year-old boy came forward and reported to police that he had played video games with who he thought was Adam Walsh, and that there was also a young girl watching them. Remember this little girl, Lori. But the little boy, the 12-year-old boy, reported that he had played with them about 1.30 or 2. But unless this 12-year-old was wearing a watch, how accurate would his his, uh, estimation of time have been? This boy thought... Adam had simply walked off, Um, but this may be a time when the boy later said there was a man signaling to Adam. Next, there was 13-year-old James Martin. He reported being in Sears around 1245 and played video games with a boy he thought was about eight years old, but may have been Adam. Next was 10-year-old Timothy Pottenberg. His cousin and their grandmother reported seeing Adam enter a blue van outside of the Sears. Adam left the Sears through the north exit and was chased by the van. Under hypnosis, Timothy described the van in more detail, and he described two white men. Police used to use hypnosis um, quite a lot. On Friday, August fourteenth, 1981, a man named Eugene um, Minacho reported to Hollywood police that a 1979 Ford blue van nearly collided with him as he drove to zero. To Sears, that warning that Adam was abducted under hypnosis. Minacho described a white male, mid twenties, thin mustache, black hair, olive complexion, without a shirt. That all happened in 1981. These are people that came forward with various descriptions of people they thought may have been involved in Adam Walsh's kidnapping. The story of the Milwaukee cannibal broke on July 21st, 1991, and the story brought forth new witnesses from the Hollywood Mall on that fateful day in 1981. Well, we know that Morgan came forward again. Another man named um, William Bowen came forward in 1991. He lived in Dade County for about eight months in 1981. He remembers seeing a man throw a young boy violently into a vehicle, which he identified as a blue van. Uh, He later, he saw a a missing poster and a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he recognized Adam from the incident in the mall. Before he left Dade County, he'd been burglarized, and when he reported the burglary to police, he also, um, he also told them about what happened outside of, the, outside of the Sears when he saw who he thought was Adam being thrown into the van. He reported the incident officially to police in 1991 when he saw Dahmer's photo in the local paper. Bowen was interviewed by Hoffman, who indicated that they already had Adam's killer. So Hoffman, at that point, thought they already had Adam's killer in custody, so he was kind of pushing William Bowen off. In 1994, Vernon Jones, a nine-year-old in 1981, wrote a letter to the Walshes in which he claimed he had been playing video games with Adam and had seen Adam leave with a man who had been motioning to the boys a few minutes before. Jones and his grandfather attempted to report what they had seen but they encountered a racist cop outside the station and so they never went in. Years later Vernon felt that Dahmer may have been the man that he saw with Adam Walsh. On October 30th, 1995, a woman named Jenny Warren called Hollywood Police, reporting that she saw Adam playing video games that day in 1981. She said she saw a man fitting Dahmer's description near the catalog department in Sears, and as she left, she saw the man standing right next to Adam. Janice Santa Santa Messino called America's Most Wanted on September 21st, 1996, to report what she had tried to report in 1981 on the night that Adam disappeared. In 1981, Janice had called the police to report that she had seen Adam playing video games and that she saw a van parked inappropriately in front of Sears and found it so annoying that she tried to remember the plate number. Do you remember in the 12-year-old's account five weeks after Adam Walsh's abduction, his account that there was a little girl watching them? So that little girl may have been Janice's four-year-old daughter, Lori. Lori played a video game with Adam for about 10 minutes, and she saw a disheveled man hanging around the the department store, the toy department, um, whom Janice later identified as Dahmer. In 1997, Philip Lohr reported witnessing a child he thought was Adam being carried or dragged out of the Sears by a man fitting Dahmer's description. Lohr said he saw a blue van parked outside the entrance to Sears. So that's a lot of people that have come forward with various different accounts of what they saw happen that day with Adam. Well, witnesses reported having seen a blue van near the scene of Adam's abduction, and this was an early lead. Eventually, however, when Otis Toole confessed to the murder, um, the blue van was discounted because Toole drove like a big old white sedan. Well, could Dahmer have been driving a blue van? Well, Dahmer told people later that he... You know, he didn't drive at all while he was there. So how would we even begin to figure out whether or not Jeffrey Dahmer had access to a blue van while he was in Florida? This is where Art Harris uh, shows his research and detective skills. What he's able to find out is just insane. Well, Dahmer worked at a place called Sunshine Subs when he was in Florida. And Sunshine Subs was owned by Beach Pizza, and Beach Pizza had a blue van that they used for deliveries. And it was really easy for employees to just take the store's vehicle when they wanted. Dahmer would claim in an interview with Detective Hoffman, you know, later, that he worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. And this was untrue and was proven by records at work. Dahmer's former boss at Sunshine Subs said he worked from about 10 a.m. until 4 or 5. And he said that after a couple of weeks, Dahmer started showing up to work late, drunk, and disheveled, and often would be sent home. One of the things that Harris and others focus on is a possible slip of the tongue um, that Dahmer makes. Years later, you know, after the 1991 conviction, Dahmer was interviewed by Robert Ressler, who was a, he was an FBI profiler. And Dahmer is talking about a coincidence of him picking up the brother of one of his victims. And Dahmer says, I didn't know him from Adam. They kind of latch onto to this thinking that that's some kind of slip of the tongue or that Dahmer's trying to tell them something. But I think more likely, it's simply that Dahmer was using that old, like, common idiom, I don't know him from Adam. Um, and it comes from the religious text claiming that the first male human was Adam. So Harris also asserts that Jeffrey Dahmer killed a 55-year-old homeless man named Bo Janda, who had been living in a meter room behind the sub shop where Dahmer worked. Dahmer had called the police to report that, that this man was unconscious, lying face down near the meter room. So he called to report this guy who was dead, and Harris is thinking that Dahmer actually killed him. Well, did Dahmer kill Adam Walsh? Many people, including John Walsh, believe that Adam was murdered by a serial killer named Otis Toole. Um, I really like the theory that that Dahmer killed Adam Walsh, but I have to admit that the likelihood of this connection is like close to zero. If you're interested in learning more about Art Harris's theories, read his two books on the subject, and they're they have his research. The the amount of stuff he's able to dig up is fascinating, but they're called Jeffrey Dahmer's Dirty Secret. The Unsolved Murder of Adam Walsh, Book 1, Finding the Killer, and Book 2, Finding the Victim. So I merely scraped the surface of Harris's investigation, which includes rudimentary blood analysis from the meter room behind the sub shop where Dahmer worked, interviews with Dahmer's boss and co-workers from the sub shop, and an impressive verification of the mystery blue band's origin. Florida did not work out for Dahmer, so he returned to Ohio in September of 1981. Shortly after arriving back in Ohio, um, Dahmer began to get in trouble again. I want to stop here a moment and discuss sexual offenses and alcoholism. According to Anil Agrawal in his 2008 textbook, Forensic and Medico-Legal Aspects of Sexual Crimes and Unusual Sexual Practices, up to 80% of rapes are linked to the offender's use of alcohol. Further, 66% of sexual sadists and 28 to 65% of pedophiles have a history of alcohol abuse. Dahmer, even at age 21, was a severe alcoholic. He was arrested for drunken disorderly on a number of occasions, and Lionel and Sherry thought that he really needed a change of scenery. So what they did is they sent him to live with his grandmother in West Allis, Wisconsin. And his grandmother, this is Lionel's mother. And Jeffrey really seemed to have a true affection for his grandmother. And in the beginning, he attended church with her, helped out with chores, and seemingly in an attempt to lead a normal life. He did, however, begin reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. If you're not familiar with the Satanic Bible, it's interesting, to say the least. There are nine Satanic statements, and here are five of them. One, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Three, Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Four, Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those that walk on all fours, who because of his, quote, divine, spiritual, and intellectual development, end quote, has become the most vicious animal of all. Satan represents all of the so-called sins, as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. This is interesting, because by studying the Satanic Bible, Dahmer may have been trying to justify his urges. Brian Masters, in his book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer, attributes Dahmer's interest in Satanic in the satanic church to his childhood game of infinity land, his need to find belonging in a remorseless swirling and circling of inescapable infinite nothingness. Jeffrey had a difficult time finding a job, but he eventually landed a job as a phlebotomist, and a phlebotomist, if you don't know, is somebody who takes your blood. Jeffrey admitted that uh, once while he was working as a phlebotomist, he took a vial of blood home, and he drank it. He said he spat it out, though, because he didn't like it. After just 10 months, he was let go. And some sources indicate that his position was eliminated, while others claim that he was let go due to performance issues. Jeffrey, seemingly trying to live a normal life with his grandmother, does something disturbing. On August seventh, 1982, Jeffrey exposed himself to a group of women and children at the Wisconsin State Fair. He was, of course, drunk. For this, Dahmer was charged with disorderly conduct, and he was fined $50. That sure showed him, right? Well, lucky for Jeffrey, Lionel was always ready to bail him out. This is the first time that Dahmer's exhibitionist was documented, and instead of disorderly conduct, he probably should have been arrested for indecent exposure. All right, so what's the difference between exhibitionism and indecent exposure? They're often used interchangeably, but they're really different. Indecent exposure charges um, these charges can be levied when a man urinates in public or when a uh, quote stri- a, a stripper a dancer stripper is performing whereas exhibitionism is a pathological condition and is considered by some to be a form of sadism and this kind of makes sense because the purpose of it is to offend right? The DSM-5 defines it as um, a mental disorder that causes a person to expose his sexual organs or genitals to other people, usually people they've never met and are not expecting it. In 1982, offenses such as indecent exposure were not treated with the same seriousness as they are now. And over the last 40 years, we've come a long way to understand that voyeurism and exhibitionism are often precursors to much more serious offenses. After being unemployed for a couple of years, Jeffrey got a job at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory in Milwaukee sometime in January of 1985. He worked the night shift six days a week. According to Dahmer, things were normal and calm and he felt he was controlling his demons, including his homosexual urges, and that he wasn't drinking. Although most people today understand that Sexual orientation is not something that one chooses, and certainly one should not feel as though they should suppress normal sexual interests no matter what gender is preferred. Um, In fact, scientists have discovered two gene variants that are seemingly involved in the development of sexual orientation. There was a good summary article published in 2017 in the New Scientist. You can see my website for a link to the article. For some time, Jeffrey kept his homosexual urges under control until one day he was propositioned while he was at the public library. He'd been sitting and reading a book when a man dropped a note onto his lap that instructed Jeffrey to meet him in the bathroom and the man would give Jeffrey a blowjob. Up until that point, Jeffrey had limited his masturbation to once a week. But after that incident, the frequency of his masturbation increased until he was masturbating four times a day. He began drinking heavily again. Um, continued to engage in exhibitionism, and then added frauderism, which is the rubbing of your one's genitals against a non-consenting person. So he added these to his deviant mix. And to be clear, I'm not saying that homosexuality is deviant. I'm only referring to his actual paraphilias. Jeffrey seemed to be looking for nonviolent ways in which to feed his growing urges. At one point, Dahmer found an attractive store mannequin, and he hid in the store overnight so he could steal it. He says that the substitute worked for a while, but his grandmother found it and threw it out. Once, after seeing an obituary of an attractive young man, he even attempted to rob a grave, but when he got there to dig it up, the ground was too hard. Jeffrey's younger brother, David, came to visit that same year. So Jeffrey, now 24, and David, 18, had to share a bed. Jeffrey tried fondling his sleeping brother, but this did not go over well with David. In 1985, Dahmer began to patronize bathhouses. If you don't know what a bathhouse is, with roots in ancient Greece, bathhouses in the West can be traced back to the 19th century when homosexuality was illegal and men needed a safe place in which to engage in sex with other men without the fear of being arrested and publicly humiliated. In the 1950s, exclusively gay bathhouses began to open in the U.S., and these provided a safer alternative to sex in public places. By the 60s and 70s, bathhouses were commonly frequented by gay and bisexual men. The bathhouses provided Dahmer with an outlet for his sexual interests. However, most men were not interested in being a passive and non-participating vehicle for Dahmer's sexual urges. He really wanted someone just to lie still. In June of 1986, Dahmer obtained a prescription for sleeping pills, and he began drugging men at the bathhouses. A couple of men complained, but it wasn't until one man could not be revived that the club banned Dahmer and he was blacklisted at the other establishments, but nobody pressed charges. Dahmer's contact with police increased. He was cautioned by police on August 18, 1985 for giving them the finger. On April 7th, Jeffrey refused was refused service at a, a bar at 3 o'clock in the morning um, because he was already so drunk. So he became angry and threw things at the bartender and threatened to shoot her. He was arrested for drunken disorderly, but no charges were brought against him. On September 8th, 1986, Dahmer was arrested for masturbating in front of two 12-year-old boys, Richard Cohn and John Ostlin. He was charged with lewd and lascivious behavior and indecent exposure, even though he claimed he had been simply urinating and had no idea anyone was around. On March 10, 1987, Dahmer was sentenced to one-year probation and was instructed to seek counseling. He was given two psychological exams, and each were designed to allow doctors to identify any mental disorders. In the first test, Dahmer made a couple of telling admissions. One is, I keep having strange thoughts I wish I could get rid of, and I know I'm a superior person, so I don't care what people think. In the second test, it was clear that his father was always working and that he had no connection with his mother. He did complete the following statement, I felt blue when my dog died. This was the only sign of real emotion that he showed. He didn't participate in the counseling with his first therapist, uh, Dr. Rosen. Other than being physically present there, he would often just turn his back on the doctor. Dr. Rosen said this about Dahmer, quote, there is no doubt at this time that he is a schizoid personality disorder who may show marked paranoid tendencies. He is definitely spooky, end quote. He saw another doctor, Dr. Boise, who made this assertion, quote, could become a psychopathic deviant sociopath with schizoid tendencies. His deviant behavior will at least continue in some form if not exacerbated. Without some type of intervention, which is supportive, his defenses will probably be inadequate and he could gravitate towards further substance abuse with possible subsequent increased masochism or sadistic tendencies and behaviors. Dahmer's probation for this incident ended in November of 1987, just days before he would start killing again. It was clear that Jeffrey Dahmer had some real issues with alcohol and with sexual deviance. And by this, I mean exhibitionism, drugging, sexual partners, etc. A number of doctors have diagnosed Dahmer with schizoid personality disorder. And the DSM-5 defines schizoid personality disorder as a pervasive pattern of social and interpersonal deficits marked by an acute discomfort with a reduced capacity to form close personal relationships, as well as by cognitive and perceptual distortions and eccentricities of behavior, um, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. According to Strubel, in her 2007 article, Dahmer suffered from a combination of paraphilias. She wrote that Dahmer suffered from necrophilia, pedophilia, exhibitionism, and cannibalism all those paraphilias, along with depression, substance abuse, Asperger's disorder, disordered personality, borderline personality disorder, and social skills deficits. Just a few things, right? Well, hang tight until the next episode when we will dive into Dahmer's pathologies in more detail. If you're interested in reading more about Jeffrey Dahmer, see my list of references and photos on my website. Follow the podcast on most of your social media platforms at SKB Pod or visit the website at www.skbpod.com for more information about the show. If you're enjoying SKB, please take a moment to give it a five-star review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, Podcast Republic, and SoundCloud. Until next time.
0: If you fail, okay. What Without-